0: Long before Beth joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the United States in 2002, she was living in St. Thomas in the Caribbean, trying to survive her marriage to an abusive, violent man.
1: If I didn't leave, he would have killed me, or I would have killed him. At one point, this thought came into my head. Feed him rat poison. That's when I realized I needed to get down on my knees and pray. I wasn't going to let him kill me. I was going to kill him first.
0: Any person's mind can go to pretty dark places when experiencing despair and terror. Beth did not use the rat poison, but she did get out. She ran away from her husband and eventually left the Caribbean to build a new life in the United States. I'm Caroline Klein, and you're listening to This Global Latter-day Life. Beth's story is one of hundreds we've collected as part of Claremont Graduate University's oral history projects. Today we'll be talking about Beth's story of escaping an abusive marriage and her determination to carve out a better life. In order to protect her privacy, we've given her a pseudonym, and Ramona Morris is reading the words Beth spoke in her oral history interview. And just a quick content warning, Beth's oral history does contain an anecdote that briefly mentions a couple of details about the abuse. I'll be joined by Sarah Bonilla, a licensed marriage and family therapist who has worked with several Latter-day Saints. Sarah joined us for our last episode, which also revolved around this topic of domestic violence. I'm thrilled that she's here again to talk about this oral history and offer her insights. Beth had grown up poor but happy on St. Vincent and the Grenadines in the 1950s and 60s.
1: My mother had 13 kids. I'm the last of my father's children. My father died when my mother was too much pregnant with me. I grew up not knowing a father. All I knew was my mother and some aunts and an uncle who was living in Trinidad. We had a lot of land, so we made our living by working the land and taking care of all the cows and goats and pigs. We had to work the land to get the other things we were in need of. It was a happy childhood, but we had to work hard. Compared to what I see now, i choose that any day. Because although we sometimes were very hungry and sometimes my mother didn't have enough to feed us, nobody knew. We would get hymn books and we would sing and sing until we were tired and went to bed. Or sometimes we would drink coconut water and eat the jelly. Sometimes that was dinner. Sometimes I would hear my mother on her knees, praying for hours, and the next days would be better because someone would pass by and offer us something. But everyone thought my mother was rich because of the way we carried ourselves. We never begged. We never went around looking hungry. We always played well, were singing, and were playing games. We grew up in the Methodist Church, but in the evenings we would go to the Pentecostal Church or the Sabbath Day Adventist
0: Church. Beth had a rough introduction to adult life when she was betrayed by her fiancé when she was a teenager.
1: I was young and innocent. The father of my first two children came home and told my mother that he loved me and wanted to marry me. Because he was going to Canada, he would send for me. He came home and I got pregnant the very first time. When I was around six months pregnant with my second child, he told my mother that he didn't want to marry me because he didn't meet me a virgin and all kinds of nonsense. I was hearing all these things and I knew he was lying, but my mother tended to believe him, so that hurt. That was rough. What made me angry was that he said he didn't meet me a virgin, so I had to deal with that.
0: Also difficult was the necessity of earning a living as a young, single mom.
1: When I was 19, my mom found this family that I went to work with. It was a family of 10 children. I used to wash and iron. I left my kids with my mom. My kids were maybe four and three, and then I had another kid who was about one. I worked with them for maybe three years. Then one day, Miss Francis and I were washing, and this feeling just came over me. I said, in January, I will not be here. She said, what do you mean? I said, I don't know, but in January, I won't be here. So she left it at that. In November of that year, we got a letter from Aruba saying that this family wanted me to come to Aruba the 1st of January. I think this was 1974. I was 24 years old.
0: Beth did domestic work for several more years in Aruba and then moved to Tortuga to work in a restaurant after her employer in Aruba accused her falsely of stealing. She didn't want to stay even after her employer apologized. In Tortuga, Beth met the man who would become her husband.
1: I worked in a restaurant and this guy used to come in there during lunchtime because he was dredging. He came over every day for lunch. One of the girls said, Beth, this man comes in here just to look at you. So one day he approached me and asked me if I wanted a ride home. So I said yes. He started coming around and saying that he loved me. But the spirit told me no. He kept asking me to marry him. The spirit told me no. But my daughter in St. Vincent wrote to me and told me how one of my sisters was streaking her bad. So I accepted this man's offer of marriage in order to get my kids. I married him.
0: It was a terrible marriage.
1: Before Lawrence married me, he was married before, and his wife told me that he wasn't a nice person. I was thinking that she was just jealous, but she was right. And most men down there beat up their wives. This is common in the islands. He used to beat me up. Once he punched me in my stomach. I was pregnant and I lost the baby. I had my daughter, Lawrence's daughter. One day, I was sitting on the couch and he just called my name. You know when you're afraid of someone? He called my name and I was sitting on the couch and I jumped so hard that the baby went up into the air, So I had to catch the baby. That, I turned around and put the baby on the couch. And then I kneeled down and prayed. I just prayed and prayed. When I got up, I knew I had to leave because this calm came over me and the spirit said, you have to go. So I started packing up things, things he wouldn't notice. He thought I didn't have any money. But when things started going wrong, I called a friend from Tartuga and said, okay, I'm going to send you such and such amount of money. This friend put it in the bank for me. By that time, I had 10 or 11,000 tucked away. We were living in St. Thomas.
0: After she ran away from Lawrence, she found a way to get herself and her kids to the United States, thanks to a woman she had met previously.
1: One day, I was at the laundry because I used to work in the laundry. I was at the laundry and I saw in this paper that there was an advertisement that a lady was coming to St. Thomas to interview people to find someone who would do housekeeping in the U.S. So I called her and I made an appointment. We met in St. Thomas and I told her exactly what was going on with my marriage. She said, When you figure this out and you're coming to the U.S., just call me and I'll come and get you. I was able to get my kids into America then because Lawrence was a naturalized citizen. So when I married him, I got my green card and after a couple of years, I became a citizen. This was the one good thing about the marriage, especially for my kids. So that's what I did. I called this lady from the advertisement booked my passage, and went to New Jersey where she was living. She picked me up from the airport, both she and her husband, and she got
0: work for me in Connecticut. In the U.S., Beth found a job housekeeping for a judge whose wife had MS. They let her live in the basement. Beth eventually remarried, a nice older man who died of cancer after a few years. By this time, several years after she had run away from Lawrence, she was talking to him on the phone occasionally. They had a child together, and Lawrence was willing to help support this child.
1: Lawrence and I had started talking. I didn't hold grudges, and most of all, I thank him for helping me with my kids. So I had started talking to him. When I found out about two houses near me that were going to be going to auction, he called and I told him, I wanted to buy one. He said, okay, find the house and I'll buy it for you. So he bought me a house and he bought me a car.
0: Lawrence helped her to purchase another house as well, and now Beth is a landlady. While she was living in one of those houses, Beth met the missionaries. She had taken in three of her nieces because their father had been abusing them, and at the time, she was struggling with them and their behavior.
1: One of them was outside and she said, Oh, there are three white guys outside to see you. And I looked out the window and I saw these people in white shirts and black ties. And I just yelled out, Oh, God has sent my angels. I ran downstairs and said, Oh, my angels are here, my angels are here. They came in and taught me about the scriptures. I grew up in church, so we were having a lot of arguments because of some things I didn't accept.
0: Nevertheless, when she visited the church, she was overcome by the feeling that this was the right place for her. Even so, it was still hard for her to accept all the church's teachings.
1: I wanted to get baptized because I walked into the church. When I walked into the church, I felt this is home, this peace, this everything. I didn't see anything. I just walked into the foyer and I thought, this is where God wants me to be. So I wanted to join the church, but the things they were saying, I didn't agree with. That evening, they told me, oh, you want to get baptized. You have to believe in Joseph Smith. I said, listen to me. To be baptized, I have to believe in Jesus Christ, not Joseph Smith. So we ended up not agreeing, and my missionary, he left angry. Well, maybe not angry, but we weren't happy with one another. But later, I went to bed, and I had this vision that I was eating this apple. Someone was feeding me this apple. I had never tasted something so sweet. It was so sweet. It was white. They pulled away the apple after the second bite. I started crying, actually crying in my sleep. I said, oh, I want more apple. Feed me the apple. A voice came and said, if you want to continue eating this apple, you need to get baptized. I woke up and I couldn't go back to sleep. When I woke up, I was actually crying. I cried until six in the morning and I woke up around two o'clock in the morning. I remember the missionary told me that they wake up at six o'clock in the morning. So because I couldn't sleep and I could not stop myself from crying at six o'clock, I called the missionary and he answered the phone. I was crying and I told him I wanted to be baptized. He said, Beth, what's going on? I said, I want to be baptized. We talked and he woke up all the other people who wanted to see me baptized. So that's how it happened on the 23rd of December. It was so close to Christmas that they fixed it that Sunday. I got baptized on the 23rd of December 2002. It's one of the best experiences and one of the best decisions I ever made because I just felt clean. I just feel that I'm filled with something precious, which is the Spirit.
0: One of the things Beth likes best about the church is the way male church leaders speak and behave. You
1: can tell that the leaders love Jesus Christ and Heavenly Father so much, but they're not loud about it. They're not boastful about it. It's just the way they carry themselves and the way they speak. If you listen to General Conference, they are so humble, so much humility. For example, Brother Iron. Since I joined the church, I don't think he's ever spoken once without crying. You can feel the love that he has for the Savior.
0: Church leaders' presentation of masculinity was starkly different than her husband's. While Lawrence was aggressive and violent, Beth sees these church leaders as gentle and loving. One of the most interesting things about this oral history is the way Beth managed to maintain a friendship of sorts with Lawrence after she moved to the U.S., When asked how she managed this, she commented on the importance of being one's true, authentic self, even if others around you are acting badly.
1: People think that because people are mean to them that they have to be mean to them back. But I always say you have to be yourself. I don't want to change who God made me to be. I want to be exactly what he made me. I want to do what he sent me here to do. Because Lawrence was mean, I wasn't going to be mean to Because I ran away doesn't mean that I stopped caring. I did love the guy, but if I didn't leave, he would have killed me. After all the anger, I think he called and I started talking to him. Always used to talk. We have a daughter together. So I always say, you've got to be yourself and don't change who God made you. People say things to me and do things to me, and I just look at them and say, Father, forgive them. Oh, Father, I leave it in your hands. Leave it there.
0: Lawrence did recently turn on their daughter, however, and Beth has cut off contact with him. For Beth, forgiveness does not necessarily entail tolerating a toxic presence. Beth has adopted five siblings, moved by the plight of kids stuck in the foster care system who are unable to find families that wouldn't break siblings apart. She has also found a place in her ward as a beloved matriarch. She found what she was looking for in the church, despite her initial reservations about Joseph Smith.
1: I love coming to church because I am fed. I get what I come for. I say that you don't come to serve the church. You come to serve Jesus Christ. That's what all of us are here for. It's like Joseph Smith. That's why I love the guy so much. He wasn't feeling what he wanted to feel. So he went out and formed his own thing. I'm feeling what he was feeling.
0: That is what I love. So Beth's story. Now, in this oral history of Beth, there were so many poignant and powerful parts of it. One theme that jumped out at me was the theme of migration. I noticed how often Beth moved um, from island to island. She would leave her kids with her mom often. Eventually, she moved to the U.S. Her first fiancé also was migrating to and from Canada for work. And this appears to be largely an economic migration that's happening. And I was just struck by this need um, for many families. uh, Many families break up in order to migrate for economic reasons. This is a reality for global people, for global Latter-day Saints for sure. Now, Mormonism talks a lot about nuclear family systems. And of course, I don't think anyone would disagree that having a mother and a father is a wonderful thing. And it's very appealing, very appealing to global women. The global women I talk to do find the idea of a nuclear family with loving parents um, very, very appealing. But the reality is that this is just not going to happen for a lot of people who do need to migrate to survive, who need to leave kids with relatives to earn money for those kids' support. And Stacey Lee Ford has a great article talking about LDS Filipina domestic workers who leave their kids in the Philippines to work in Hong Kong and support them. Now, I was wondering, Sarah, do you have any thoughts about LDS discourse on family and gender roles and how in the face of this global reality that, you know, where things just aren't always going to match the proclamation, right? Like how these might gain greater nuance in the future. In the face of these global Latter-day Saints who do need to migrate to survive or who can't fulfill idealized Western conservative middle-class ideas about gender roles, what advantages and disadvantages do you see in the Mormon rhetorical focus on nuclear families?
2: Well, I think it's a great question. And I think that there's an element that we have a really great village within wards and stakes that can really help people in this situation where if we take on, instead of only the nuclear is responsible for the child, but the village is also responsible for the child. I feel like, wow, how powerful could that be for families knowing my child is having good experiences and being loved and cared for by people while I'm doing what I need to do to secure our family's future. Right. And so I feel like we don't talk about that enough because we think I mean, there's there's things where, you know, don't put your kid in daycare, right? I mean, we experience that as like working mothers, right? Like, don't, don't do that. And I think we have to kind of buck that trend and say like, no, it's okay for me to work and it's okay for me to, for my child to have consistent, safe caregiving, right? And I think when we kind of view it from that perspective of why don't we embrace people in these situations and help them? and not shame them for having to do what is needed for their economic reality, then it could be so incredibly powerful. Like we just have the, we have a built-in system based off of geography that could really help people. So if mom is away working somewhere else, that you have the ward help care for that child, right? I mean, how awesome would that be? I just think that when we take that attitude, people would feel more comfortable. You know, they would feel not shamed about their decisions that they need to make based off of their realities. Mm -hmm.
0: And I think that's such a great point about how we have like the ward system is like the village system we have built in people who are there to care and love our children and that's kind of how I always felt whenever I would put my children in you know preschool when they were two or three years old it's like these are more people to love my children and I and it was always a great experience uh, for everyone that's involved now, and I did want to switch to talk a little bit about the abuse that Beth experienced. Because, yes, yeah, so she is migrating. She is, she is carving out a life, uh, trying to earn money for her children. And as she's doing this, she does meet a man who wants to marry her. And it turns out that this man is a violent husband. Now, she ultimately leaves the marriage. But she is only able to leave after she makes a plan and, like, privately kind of puts away a good amount of money that will enable her to leave. Now, and so I was wondering if I could ask you, Sarah, about what your advice is for women who are navigating abusive marriages. What are the first steps? Is it making a plan? Is it amassing funds? Is it first sort of trying to talk to, you know, getting therapy and seeing if you can fix this thing? Like, what are the first steps for someone who is in a violent, abusive Situation?
2: Well, I I do think that before you make a plan, you need to talk about it with safe, trusted people to help you kind of gauge the reality of what's going on, right? And that could be through therapy. That could be through hopefully a helpful ecclesiastical leader. It could be through family. A lot of times, families do know something's going on, but are hesitant to say something. And so when someone finally comes and says, hey, this is happening, the family often is like, we've kind of suspected. And so I think the first step is you have to tell someone, because in order to make a plan, you pretty much always need someone else's help and assistance, right? Whether that's squirreling away money or having um, something that I've worked with a lot of women about is getting together important, you know, getting together important documents so that their driver's license, Bank information, children's birth certificates, marriage license—I mean, all of those things can take some time to get, but that you need to get those things, as well as having an emergency kit, having you know discreetly packing a bag or a suitcase with some emergency items that you could quickly throw in a car, um, because what what I see happening sometimes is that the woman will often identify this is happening. They've talked with someone that it's happening, and they kind of get a little bit more confidence, like okay, I'm going to do something about this. And it's almost like their husband can kind of sometimes sense that something's going on, even if it's not being verbalized and can almost, things can almost escalate because she's seeking help. And even if he doesn't really know. And so I kind of always try to say, we need to be prepared for things to maybe escalate as you become a little bit more confident because that could be really triggering for him. And so I try to kind of make an emergency plan and have, you know, a safe place to go if they need to go, their documents that are ready, those types
0: of things. So that those are pretty foundational things that I think anyone going through this needs to be aware of. I was also interested, and this is kind of the exact opposite of what we were just talking about with, a, with an abusive husband. I was interested by Beth's comments that pointed to one major appeal of the church for her, which was the humble, gentle masculinity presented by church leaders. And it did make sense to me as I was as I was looking at this oral history, how that would be so appealing to her. She came from a context with a very violent husband, and then she sees General Conference and she sees these very gentle-voiced men who who tear up as they speak about their spirituality. This was very appealing to her. What are your thoughts? Now, you mentioned a little bit about this before, but I think it's really interesting to think about LDS discourses on... You know, benevolent masculinity and how benevolent masculinity is encouraged within the church. And I was wondering, do you see things shifting over time? Or or, in where like where they are now versus maybe where they ultimately should get, or even in the past, in like your mother's generation or something, how how things have shifted when it comes to what it means to be a man in the church and, and masculinity? I think that's a really interesting question. I think to some degree, especially Men under
2: 40 are more comfortable with talking about their feelings, about being very, living a a very authentic life. So I do see that happening, but the reality of it is, is like church leadership is typically not under 40 right now. So you have a lot of still men in leadership positions that subscribe to the older model of, you know, men are very humble and very nice, but also not necessarily open about their feelings or not necessarily... Calling out things when they need to be called out, basically, because they also don't want to. They want to be the nice guy and not hurt anyone's feelings. But the reality of it is, is sometimes you do need to be firm and to stand up for what's right, right? But even if that's going to offend people, and so I do see a shift happening. But you know, there's also this kind of idea of, and I see, and I guess I've just kind of witnessed this a lot in working with the LDS community where. A lot of people will say my dad presented one way to church and was another way at home. And so I feel like even the benevolent patriarchy is sometimes not even really like authentic, you know, and that's sometimes what I've talked with people about is our leaders are still men, right? Like there's, there's still people. And so I think sometimes we need to have conversations about being, Authentic twenty four seven, right? Instead of presenting one way because that's what we're socially kind of prescribed to do, to just be okay with being who you are if you're healthy, right? <laughs> like if you're not healthy, then you should make some changes. But that's kind of my take on it.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Beth also in her story makes some really interesting points about forgiveness. Uh, she was treated terribly, but she maintained a relationship of sorts with her ex-husband. I think it might have been several years later that she kind of picked up that, you know, talking to him to some degree. She clearly does have this expansive ability to forgive, but her forgiveness does not mean that she has no boundaries because she didn't take him back and she does eventually break off contact when he turns on their daughter. So I was wondering if I could get your thoughts about forgiveness and boundaries, because, you know, forgiveness is held up as such a wonderful Christian virtue. But in the messiness of life, I think boundaries are also very important. So what are your thoughts about this? So
2: I liked that, you know, I thought it was really interesting and very true to life that Beth had this abusive relationship, but she had a fault, she had a child with him. And so the reality of it is, is you can't always just say, okay, I'm done because you have a child with someone that often means co-parenting, especially if they haven't been abusive to your child. And so I felt like she offered a lot to him as far as being willing to have a relationship with him. And then when things didn't go well, you know, she had her boundaries, but I often tell people forgiving is not forgetting. And our brains don't really work that way. Our brains don't really just forgive and then move on. We remember traumas, we remember hurts, partly to protect ourselves from them happening again. And so I really try to have that conversation around the phrase protecting your peace. If setting boundaries protects your peace, then you need to do that at kind of all costs. And that looks differently for everyone, but that boundary is what's gonna keep you sane. You know, if you stay in a relation, you know, even if it's not a relationship, but you're engaging with someone that is, truly unhealthy, you're going to suffer consequences from that. Right. And so you can't always have the type of boundaries that you want sometimes, especially with things like co-parenting, but at the same time, like you should be free to experiment, like what boundary feels good for you. Um, And sometimes that hasn't been phrased to people like that before. Like I don't owe him. He's not entitled to my time. No, you get to make that decision yourself.
0: Oh, thank you so much for all these insights, Sarah. This has been so enlightening. Do you have any last thoughts you'd like to leave on um, on Beth's oral history or anything that we've been talking about today? Any last thoughts?
2: I just loved her, her vulnerability with what she shared as well as her resiliency. You know, she really has worked so hard to be where she's at. And I really like that she was kind of... This matriarchal figure in her ward, you know, of someone who has this life experience who can help guide others. You know, I just really, really love that.
0: Mm-hmm. And that kind of goes back to the, the point you were making earlier about the power of the ward community, how much it has to offer, not only the children, you know, of people who who maybe don't have uh, the typical stay-at-home mom situation but also just yeah the wisdom of having someone like Beth in a award who can who just has such life experience and who could contribute so much this is one of the most powerful aspects of Mormonism Mormon community the strength of this community and the wealth that's there so thank you Sarah so much for being a part of this podcast yeah you're welcome One final word of thanks to Shiloh Logan for the many hours he put into editing this episode.
2: A Claremont Graduate University Mormon Studies
0: podcast. Hi, this is Caroline Klein, host of This Global Latter-day Life. If you're enjoying the kind of stories you're hearing from Latter-day Saint women around the world on this show, you'll also enjoy my new book. It's called Mormon Women at the Crossroads, and it's filled with compelling stories like the ones you've been hearing on This Global Latter-day Life. Order a copy at the University of Illinois Press website, on amazon.com, or from your favorite local book retailer, Mormon Women at the Crossroads by Caroline Klein. This Global Latter-day Life is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the podcast, At Last She Said It, which explores interesting and sometimes challenging issues and experiences related to the lives of Latter-day Saint women.